Welcome to GRC and Me, a podcast where we interview governance, risk, and compliance thought leaders on hot topics, industry-specific challenges, and trends to learn more about their methods, solutions, and just outlook in the space. And hopefully have a little fun doing it. Um, I'm your host, Chris Clark. Uh, with me today are Daniel Stone and Tim Kelly from Portivity. Uh, Daniel is a director of the technology risk and resilience practice focused on cyber risk quantification. So over 10 years in the technology risk advisory space, specializing in assessing financial and technology risks to organizations and insurance management has adequate controls to mitigate those risks while serving a wide variety of clients across various industries. Now, welcome, Daniel. Uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and what your journey has been in GRC? Sure. Thanks, Chris. Um, and, and happy to be here uh, today. Uh, I originally have kind of an audit background, um, so it's been kind of an interesting move uh, throughout my career between financial and IT audit and then moving over to cybersecurity. Uh, but that's kind of been the consistent theme as kind of my risk management GRC background throughout all of those. And I think kind of the audit background lends itself well to cybersecurity risk management and also some of the financial aspects of uh, risk quantification, originally an accountant. But uh, as one of my bosses likes to say, I'm a recovering CPA. So um, <laughs> whole, whole goal is to use some of the same principles, but you know, use them to manage risk and security uh, in a better way. So I spent a lot of years doing cyber risk assessments, trying to find ways to problem solve and better prioritize risk in an area that you know, maybe isn't mature, as mature as financial risk management sometimes. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing your background. Um, Additionally, uh, Tim is an associate director in the Protivity Chicago office, specializing in cyber risk quant and risk management program development. He has experience performing quantitative risk assessments, developing and implementing risk management programs, and performing cybersecurity and strategy assessments. Um, welcome, Tim. Uh, how about you? What brought you to GRC? Yeah, thanks, Chris, and show today. Um, so I started my career um, in cybersecurity, did everything from, you know, technical risk assessments, program development and uh, maturity assessments, all the way through to more technical kind of architecture and cloud security sort of um, work. And I think where I really started to kind of see an emerging theme across a variety of the clients that I worked with is that, you know, uh, there were there were issues, you know, taking things from like a technical level um and at like the ground or the kind of boots on the ground level to like this thematic enterprise wide how do we start to make sense of that and so i think that's really how i got into program development because i wanted to you know figure out how we could build processes that made sense in the context of an organization so not only how do we scale those but also how do we you know create views and and value for stakeholders in and outside of security. So I think that was kind of the interesting problem that brought me into the GRC space um, from more of the technical security side um, and, and the rest is history. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think it's a, you know, it's kind of super fascinating, you know, Daniel, you coming from like the audit business side background and Tim, you coming from the security space and how both of those different paths can lead to this kind of like nexus of the two of cyber risk quant that 
the thing, the decisions you're making and what you're advising your clients on have real impacts on the business and how the way they approach those programs. So I think that's a, I think it's just like a really cool story in the way that goes. Um, you know, like before we jump to, you know, heads on directly into risk quant and get onto the meaty topics, I'd love to just kind of get us started with some like daily risk management. So, you know, we, I think we talk a lot about it in a professional practice, but, um, you know, we, we use risk management in, in our day to day. And like the example I love to give is um, I have a, a young, young child. We were, my wife and I were terrified of not getting enough sleep. So the way we approached and mitigated that risk is we started to go to bed uh, at the same time he did every night. So we go to bed at like 8.30 or nine o'clock nowadays. And what it, where that has really helped us mitigate the risk of a bad night's sleep is that, you know, we could, if he ever had a bad night, we were already, you know, six to eight hours in and felt good when we woke up. Um, and it's really turned into more of a strategic advantage for us because now we're getting up at 435 and we um, we have this time to ourselves to really like plan out the day and kind of get ahead on things. And so um, I use that as like a joking example of risk management, but I'd love to hear either your perspectives on, um, you know, how do you use risk management in your your day to day? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to jump in on that one. Um, so I think maybe one of the more obvious examples is just, you know, your own insurance products that you purchase. Uh, I'm recently a homeowner. So we kind of went through that whole process again. Um, and just kind of looking at the details of, you know, uh, homeowners insurance and life insurance and your whole financial picture. Um, separately, I'm a bit of a, a finance nerd. So I, I love kind of crunching the numbers on all that sort of stuff. But um, I do think it's interesting, especially having worked in you know risk management for nearly a decade, to kind of take that perspective on your own, you know, life, you know, your financial life, and also just the peace of mind that that brings of you know being able to kind of weather any type of storm that that comes through. So yeah, that's that's my thought on things. Very cool. Yeah, taking the the transfer risk approach. <laughs> exactly, <Yeah>. Daniel. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um... I mean, there's the classic example of every day you're in traffic and uh, uh, kind of trying to get to work in the morning. Although, I don't know, sometimes that is more or less uh, applicable to folks these days. Um, but, you know, just this morning on the way in, it's like, okay, I've got, you know, I need to be here by a certain time in the morning. Uh, I, I, I can leave my house as late as, you know, X time and hope for the best in Atlanta traffic, which... Um, is not always uh, a smart bet to make. Um, and then there are little shortcuts and different routes you can take. And uh, But there's always the risk of encountering, you know, a school bus or a, a MARTA bus or, or a construction somewhere on the way. And um, every morning is a new route. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> that's awesome. No, I, uh, I can't. I can only Im imagine Atlanta traffic as I as my route is from my bed to a different room. Uh, so. <laughs> um, well, I appreciate you sharing. I know that's a, like a, just a goofy start to it, but, um, you know, jumping a little bit more now into cyber risk management and quantification. Um, you know, as you, you, know, you both talk about risk quantification, kind of the business impacts of it, you know, what are some pros and cons that folks listening to this should be thinking about 
as they start down the path of risk quantification and, and really the, the impacts of the business associated with it? Yeah, sure. Um, and there's certainly a lot of both, like, like with any like with any type of topic, there's every risk management methodology has its use cases, its strengths, um, and uh, some areas where it's maybe not as impactful. Uh, and I think it's important to look at all of them as tools in the toolbox. So um, where I think risk quantification excels and its major pro is that it's actionable, it's decision-focused. Um, I almost like to think of it less of a, a risk management methodology and more of a a decision-making framework. Um, and within that, you know, the real benefit of risk quantification is that it's all about making comparisons and decisions and, and, and enabling management to make better calls on what they're going to invest in, how they're going to secure an organization. Um, and the main pro to me is putting things in that framework kind of forces you to make decisions because if you think about how we traditionally deal with a risk, it's really a check the box exercise in some cases. Um, so you get this big long report that comes out to management and they say, oh, I've got 300 high risks in the organization, you know, 200 mediums, 100 lows, whatever. Um, hopefully it goes the other direction in terms of uh, <laughs> criticality, but um, it, it's easy for folks to say, oh, a high risk, I can accept that. It's harder to say this risk could be up to $20 million a year of loss exposure to my organization. So I'm going to accept that. It kind of makes you, forces you to make a decision in some respects. And I think that's good in risk management. You know, I don't think we see enough of that sometimes. So I think that would be one pro that I would, I would kind of point out there. And curious to um, Tim, kind of what maybe you see as uh, another pro. Yeah, I think one of the the other major benefits that that I see is that you're able to compare risks outside of cybersecurity, right? Um, as we take that up to the ERM level or, you know, whether that's, you know, making business decisions about do we go into a market um, or how do we invest in our technology stack to make sure that we're you know resilient uh, against cyber threats or otherwise. Um, and it's it's a much broader conversation. And you know, when you go to that discussion with I've got three critical risks on this application, you know, we're talking apples and oranges, and it doesn't add a whole lot of value to that discussion. But if we're able to talk in dollars and cents, um, I think I think that can be very beneficial. And then in addition to that, as we start to look at kind of actions that are driven out of that, you know, maybe getting back to the earlier example of, you know. Can we accept that? Yes, possibly, but also can we ensure that out? Is there a product that we're able to purchase or contractual terms that we're able to uh, implement that help mitigate some of that risk? So I think it, it becomes a much more clear path in terms of next steps as to how do we respond to this and um, how do we make sure that we're doing what's best for the organization with a kind of a broader, um, broader lens. No, I, I appreciate it. I um, It makes a lot of sense. And I, I love the analogy of it becomes another tool in the toolbox, Daniel, of like, I think oftentimes, you know, you get all this data in front of you and which is what you need for it. And it, it can really lead to some kind of analysis paralysis of, you know, if you have all this data, what do you do with it? And so forcing leaders to make that decision is kind of like, 
you know, it, it's incredibly impactful to the business. And it, like Tim, it allows us to make those decisions on tech stack and where to invest and how to turn that into a strategic advantage, which is super powerful. Um, I'd be interested to hear kind of like the flip side of it, of where you've seen this maybe go astray and like what some of the cons of like risk quant, or maybe not cons, but like cautions for people as they go into this. Yeah, I mean, you you hit on Chris some of the uh, the analysis paralysis piece, and and certainly when we're talking about risk quantification, it's not uncommon for folks to to see that availability of data as an opportunity to well, let's go quantify everything. Um, let's let's put all of this data together, and until we have the exact right answer. We can't do anything with this data. And, and I think we tend to caution folks to think about it as, as an opportunity to do something with data that's going to get you a better decision than where you were before. Um, you're going to be able to uh, kind of quantify things at a new level, but there's definitely a diminishing returns on accuracy. Like if you're spending all your time investing in your risk quantification program and fine-tuning it to get the exact right answer, there's a cost that comes associated with that. And you're almost creating a new risk of you know, spending more time on risk quantification than actually creating value for the organization. Uh, and so there's a cautionary tale there. And I think you know, one of the things that folks need to, to worry about a little more is just, where am I going to spend the energy on this? How precise do I need my answer to be? And as a result, you know, what level of data or analysis within the FAIR model or whatever type of risk quantification solution you're, you're using is good enough to get you a good answer. Um, and I think that's a real art sometimes, but it, um, it is something that can be, you know, like if you just start out with a FAIR program or, or in risk quantification, you might try to overdo some things and feel like it's not attainable. Whereas maybe maybe you're just not thinking about it the right way in terms of how much investment you're going to put in the program to get what you want out of it. Um, we see that a lot. <laughs> Ironically, it's the, you know, it's the quantification <laughs> of the hours to go into whether or not to quantify everything. Um, yeah. Tim, I yeah. hope you have a, another perspective. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree with with all of that. We like to use the term a um, useful level of precision. So depending on the question you're trying to answer, get to the point where you have a level of precision that allows you to make that decision and then move forward. Um, I think maybe just one of the other things that that I was thinking about as we were we were talking there is um, not kind of getting to the point where the program's up and running and getting past that initial threshold. There is an upfront lift as you're starting to build um, build out your processes and you know building that inventory of data and a lot of that you know once in place is more of just a maintenance exercise as opposed to a net new. Um, so there is an upfront lift and I think a lot of organizations um, you know will get stuck in that initial uh, kind of program build and not necessarily see the full value um, once it's steady state. Not to, not to say it runs itself. Um, but um, certainly less of a, a level of effort as it relates to um, kind of the the, fairing, the care and feeding of a of a program. Yeah, that's that makes a ton of sense. Of and I think that's even where you know, like I get a little 
nervous about things is like there's always this stand up or this like activation energy that's needed from an organization to get over that initial bump. And like when you're climbing a hill, it's always you don't know necessarily always where the top is. But once you're over the top and like you're on that downhill, it's so much easier to maintain and keep going off of it. So I uh, I yeah. like that. Yeah, I think it's it, it's it's free to continue doing what you're doing that might not be working. You don't always see the hidden cost of like, are we making bad decisions with the model that that we're using right now? Um, you know, do, are we missing insight? Are we missing the fact that we could be you know misprioritizing or not making the right business decisions? It's hard to see that when you've got something that quote unquote works um, on a daily basis, that it's free to keep doing the same thing. Um, change requires a little bit of investment. Um, but I don't know, sometimes it just, you get a lot out of the conversations and the process you go through with risk quantification that adds real value to an organization that I think so for better or worse, you don't always see when you're making that decision of, should we do more of this? And I, I mean, kind of using that as like there's a there's a hidden cost to this but then there's real value in it how how have you seen this be like effectively communicated like upward so the people who aren't in the day-to-day like how have you seen this kind of like like risk quant communicated to boards are there you know what types of reports do you think resonate with them or like just communication yeah, yeah, that's a it's a great question. And I think right off the bat, it's important to start with an understanding of where the board's coming from, not only from a technical perspective, but what are their objectives and what's kind of the, the conversation going on at the board level so that you can meet them where they are and um, come with valuable information. Again, getting back to the decision making framework and um, providing the information that allows for that that effective decision making. So I think that's kind of the first thing. Um, you know, I think going from there, oftentimes what we see is, you know, a board member or a a member of leadership will, you know, will read a headline and then the security organization goes scrambling to um, react to that particular topic. So let's say ransomware, for instance, as opposed to, you know, sending everybody's week in, you know, into a spin. um, I think the more effective solution to that is having and essentially uh, allowing for the organization to respond with, you know, we've looked at scenarios related to ransomware. Um, Those compare to our top risks in this way. Um, And as a result, we determined that we have the ability to respond and recover to a ransomware incident within, you know, our tolerance. And because of that, we're prioritizing other types of initiatives. And we feel that these are more important because X, Y, Z factors, or you name it. So I think kind of that rationalized approach and having um, kind of the research done up front helps to get away a bit from the emotional side of um, some of the headlines or, you know, uh, kind of hot topics that that pop up. Well, I guess even the, like to that point is like, how do you plan all that? Like, how do you, how are you looking around corners? You know, like, for that reactive piece, but I guess, no, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I'll pause there. How do you, how do you plan for when, you know, you see a headline and you react to it? Like, is it just having the model and the data ready? Is it, 
you know, what are the types of prep you can do to make sure that you're you're equipped to answer those questions? Yeah, yeah, I think best case is that you've looked at that risk in the past, but that's okay. not always going to be possible, yeah. right? So ransomware, ideally, that's part of your top assessment, and you're, you've got kind of the data to back that. But I think your your point is you're not always going to know what is around that corner. Um, and so I think the best way of looking at that is, you know, saying we've got these top risks. Maybe we do a, a quick analysis of something new that popped up and then stack that against our existing you know, set of priorities to say, are we still on target um, or did this new set of data and, you know, these new circumstances that we're now operating within, did that change the way that we need to look at protecting the organization or responding and recovering to events? Um, so, so I think that's that's how I look at it. Daniel, I'm curious if you've got any ad additional thoughts around that. Yeah, I'll, I'll say outside of kind of your traditional black swan events, let's say a high impact, low probability event, outside of those, being risk isn't new. Um, a lot of what we're talking about are zero day vulnerabilities or different variants of attacks that um, may come up in the news here and there. And a mature risk management program, when you're, when you're kind of working in a risk quantification space, you've got generally a good catalog of what are my assets? What does an outage look like uh, for this asset? What does a, a loss of data look like from this asset? And if you've invested what you need in kind of a risk quantification program and have a mature process for cataloging those probabilities and loss events and things like that, most of what you could do is anticipate those questions by saying, yeah, we've looked at this scenario before. We, we know generally what this looks like. You know, we're happy to get back to you, you know, Mr. Board Member or Mrs. Board Member and let you know how this specific technology fits uh, within that scenario. But we know that at a high level, this is what, you know, this risk is to the organization and, and you know, having all of that kind of probability management, data management ahead of time. In, in kind of an operational platform that you can query and just get results from gives you the ability to do that on the fly. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense of like, if you just know what your environment is, it's really oh. easy to then assess what the impact of that environment is. Um, one thing that I kind of always gets me around that though, is like, how do you ever feel confident that you know all of your assets? Like that feels like a really underlying piece of data that's critical to the risk yeah. plan piece, but like, how do you ever build confidence around that? Well, I, I think the answer is you should probably never feel confident that you have all of your assets. Um, but, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it, you, you spend, you just spend time on it on a regular basis. And I, I hate to go back to kind of the, the pros and stuff of, of this methodology, but when you have a mature kind of risk management and risk quantification process in place, it enables a lot of conversations with the business that you may not have had before. Because oftentimes risk management's kind of done in a silo. You've got, you know, oh, I got this list from my, you know, IT team that's got a list of all of our servers on it. I've kind of ran some vulnerability analysis against that. Those aren't the kind of conversations you're having all the time with um, a risk quantification methodology. You're spending a little more time with folks like BSOs or, uh, 
or your product owners or things like that understand how risk impacts them. And oftentimes during those discussions, they go different ways than you'd expect. And one of the ways that they sometimes go is you learn about a new critical process or an asset or something like that, that the business needs to operate. And you can update that within your analysis. So I think the key is having more of that dialogue with your your business leaders gets you that comfort that you're covering what matters to them. Yeah, agreed completely. And I think the only thing I would add is that it's expected that the business is going to grow and change or uh, you know, reshape what those assets look like over time. And, and that should be taken into account um, as you're building processes and, you know, developing those relationships, which allow you to ensure that that's accurately reflected in your analysis. So easier said than uh, I think that is kind of a base assumption that the business is changing just as much as the threat environment is changing. And those variables need to be taken into consideration. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And just like how do like it's at the very least, it becomes a discovery exercise in some way. Yeah. Um, this is kind of t- tangential, I, I suppose. But, you know, one thing that, you know, we in this quantification conversation, we've been talking about a lot about like loss events, about like losing something from the business. And I think oftentimes there's a negative reaction to compliance and risk because it's focused on what you're losing. And so there's this, you know, it's, it tends to be the, the stick and not the carrot, right? Like you're doing it to avoid a fine, you're doing it to avoid some kind of bad event happening rather than positioning it as like a growth opportunity or strategic endeavor. How, um, how have you seen like, like risk quantification be used to instead incentivize the positive side of the business or help them make strategic decisions that grow. Yeah, I think I would go back to um, an item kind of Tim was was mentioning earlier around kind of using it to make business investment decisions um, and uh, kind of enable strategy. We have done kind of a number of quantitative scenarios or projects where we're focused on, you know, if we want to uh, you know, kind of deploy this new solution or maybe upgrade our applications, where is it going to have the most impact first? So that could be in terms of reducing vulnerability risk to the organization, but it could also be in reducing kind of non-productive time. Um, for example, if we're spending a lot of time supporting a system because it's it's out of date, no one knows how to use it anymore, which I know most folks listening can can relate to every company's got some of those uh, black holes of uh, you know this little piece of server that's duct taped together that was created in you know 1990 and has been supported ever since that no one touches but it just works. Um, if we can get off those types of solutions where we're you know having to internally you know, work on them, we can quantify that and enable not just loss avoidance but also you know better solutions for a customer and things like that are, you know, can be taken into account in a fair model. Um, I'm not sure that folks always focus on some of those areas, uh, but certainly productivity improvements, revenue growth, things like that, those can all be modeled in the forms of loss and fair. Uh, and, but, you know, from a loss magnitude perspective, you can kind of 
show differences and scenarios of how you know one with more or less revenue loss works. So you can go kind of both directions there. Yeah, maybe one example that I think we've seen at a lot of clients is like a cloud migration, right? Yep. Um, and I think that it, it exactly aligns with what Daniel was talking about. You know, legacy environment and a lot of maintenance costs and a lot of you know wheel spinning. And so I think that comparison and that kind of future state projection of what would the new environment look like and what is the risk posture associated to that can certainly add to business justification for for those types of investments. Yeah. And I think the decision part that comes in there, just to piggyback off, like a lot of companies don't have just one of those things. They've got like hundreds or thousands of those old duct tape together solutions that um, we need to figure out which of those makes sense to migrate first. And that's a good use case for a decision-based model like cyber risk quantification. Yeah, that's super powerful. And I I think that ties in to what you're saying around like, with these duct tape server models, there's something to be said for just like institutional inertia, right? This is the way yeah. we've always done it. It works. Why change? And like equipping leaders, you know, there's a lot of that upfront work, but equipping leaders to make those decisions that are ultimately going to help them save time, save money, save like lower risk is super powerful in the way that works. So I, I really appreciate that, that, uh, that explanation. Pivoting a little bit, right? This is, we, we've talked a lot about like loss events and, you know, quantifying those. Um, I think though now when we pivot to like responding to those events in a way, we, we there's a lot of buzz around like operational resilience and like preparing for, you know, if something bad occurs, how do you as an organization become resilient to that? And, um, you know, there's things like, Dora and NAIS two. Um, do you all mind giving an overview of kind of those regulations and frameworks and um, like why they matter? Sure. Yeah, happy to. So uh, maybe to start with just kind of Dora versus NIST two. So Dora aims to strengthen resilience in the financial sector, right? So it's more focused with that type of organization, and whereas NIST two is uh, focused on cybersecurity, but across a variety of of sectors, or actually all sectors. Um, the other maybe kind of key detail here is that DORA is a regulation, right? Meaning it's legally binding. Um, it applies to all member states across the EU. And it's it's also highly prescriptive. Um, whereas NIST, uh, NIST 2 is a directive, meaning that member states have that kind of autonomy to choose how they transpose that into law. Um, so jurisdiction is is critical to that discussion and determining what applies to your organization is kind of you know upfront very important um we'll see more as or, or as uh, member states start to define those laws or propose them um, but i think at a, at a high level that kind of covers it uh, but i i think in line with that discussion around regulation is also kind of maybe some of the emerging themes within the space of operational resilience. And one of them is data resilience. Um, so I, I think at a high level to kind of describe that, um, the way we look at that is essentially, you know, starting to establish loss tolerances with the business for how how much data could be lost to still maintain operations and, and continue moving forward. Um, 
and there's this kind of idea of deterministic versus non-deterministic recovery types. And, you know, typically we'll look at, you know, things like, uh, things from like more of a deterministic point of view, right? There's the rebooting of a server takes X number of, you know, hours or minutes, you know, whereas there are things that probably weren't taken into account, um, previously, um, such as like assuring that a system is free of cyber threats, that there's no advanced per persistent threats within the environment, no malware that's kind of hiding um, in the shadows on systems. And, and those types of events um, have, you know, variable timelines. So it, I think the overall concept here is we're kind of looking at data resilience and how that like feeds into the discussion is we need to take into account that there are different um, types of recoveries. And that's going to vary and we need to plan for that. So having kind of those, you know, candid conversations with business leaders, determining their tolerance, and then also being realistic about the state of events um, as it relates to, you know, recovering and responding to a cyber event. So uh, I know we talked a lot about that. Or we, we went through a lot there, but happy to answer any questions if you want to dive deeper into to any of those topics. Well, the very first is I appreciate you. Now I know how to pronounce this too. So that's a good start for me. Um, but I, I guess like off of that is, um, you know, there's data resilience, there's the loss tolerance around that. Like how would like a risk quant or fair model help you to build a more resilient organization and ultimately kind of like comply or, you know, go above that? Yeah. And and I think the one of the pieces of the, FAIR model and CRQ more broadly is kind of that loss magnitude or impact um, side of the equation. And, you know, one of the things that you have the ability to do is really, well, we've got some of those business-focused discussions we've talked about that you have with all your business leaders when you're identifying assets or trying to think about how a loss event would actually impact the organization. That gives you a lot of resiliency-focused data. Um, but you know, in addition to that, you have the ability to kind of make changes to fair scenarios or models based on whether you're going to implement controls or upgrade a system that might be critical to operations. You can see how that's going to affect um, kind of an overall loss chain and show, you know, oh, if we, if we make this change, we can reduce downtime in this scenario, which ultimately allows us to get back up up and running quicker and reduce our financial loss exposure by, you know, a million dollars or whatever number it actually is. So you have the ability to make comparisons between different uh, hypothetical and current state kind of paths for how things could could play out in an actual loss event. And that, that allows you to, again, make decisions about where you need to invest in resili resiliency to kind of bring yourself into that, that tolerance level. Yeah, yeah, accounting for that uncertainty is is critical. Totally agreed, Daniel. And I think, um, especially at, from like the Opres point of view, oftentimes it's not, you know, if this event occurs, it's when it occurs. How do we respond? And um, whereas when we look at like a cyber risk, we're going to take into account the you know frequency of an event. Um, Opres is just assuming that that occurs. And then we try and work backwards from that point and say, what can we do to limit the impact? And then is a worst case scenario still tolerable um, under these you know, set of circumstances? So 
it's it's a different lens from the kind of pure cyber view, but I um I think the the fair methodology certainly, you know, adds adds value to that conversation. For sure. That that makes a lot of sense in that, you know, you can almost prioritize where to focus operas based on the impact that has been identified from a quantification or scenario based modeling. So that that's I mean incredibly helpful. And like I I guess where I'd be interested to hear is like in your experience, where has these type of operational resilience kind of efforts and programs had the most impact in the way businesses are approaching risk or approaching risk quant? Like has it changed the way where they plan out these scenarios or changed the way they approach risk scenarios? Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. I I think the short answer is yes. Um, I think it's more of an enterprise risk discussion as opposed to a pure cyber discussion. Uh, but but yeah, I think I think the conversation's changing. Um, some industries are ahead of others, and you know, as we talked a little bit about earlier, operas in the financial services space is more evolved than other places, partially driven by regulation, partially driven by you know, kind of in-house you know, requirements and, and risk kind of uh, management for lack of a better term. Um, but yeah, I think, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but um, I, I, it's certainly the conversations evolving, you know, weekly, it seems. Yeah. And like Dora was just came out, right. It's still on the front lines. We don't know where those impacts have had, but it, I, it's interesting to kind of see a broader like trend of, you know, EU comes out with something, it impacts the financial sector first. And then from there, we'll see these kind of like downstream effects of how other industries then take into account similar things and other geographies. I, I'd also point out that a lot of some of the concepts behind resiliency and criticality analysis aren't necessarily new. Like there's some some regulatory teeth behind it for financial services, the EU coming out, but um, healthcare, for example, uh, risk to patient data, you've always had kind of a, a focus on maintaining resilient exact copies of those, doing a hospital vulnerability analysis, a hazard and vulnerability analysis for a hospital. You've got NERC-SIP in the electrical uh, power and utilities industry that requires kind of understanding where your critical components are to be able to deliver consistent power. Uh, so critical infrastructure has always had some kind of component of resiliency here. I think where we're starting to see more organizations move is, is solving for some of the actual probability of it and, and using a little less of that traditional, oh, well, there's a low likelihood and a potentially high impact of this. I think that's where financial services is maybe more ahead of the, the ball here uh, with some of these regulatory impacts. But uh, I, I do see you know, anywhere that there's a risk or vulnerability analysis, a supply chain resilience analysis that needs to be done, FAIR can certainly provide a lot of the tools to enable that and do it in a more efficient, defensible way than you might have done historically. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I appreciate that that perspective. And yeah, I, there's just there's just more there. And the financial industry is is ahead of that. But there's this doesn't just stop there. It is applicable to everyone. And at least uh, NIST2 is 
giving us that framework for in other spaces to like prepare for whatever's coming down. So um, I guess like on a similar, like this is kind of that emerging regulation piece of it. I'd be interested in, you know, talking a little bit about like some emerging technology and how that might impact, you know, some of this like op res or like fair piece of it. Um, so in particular, like with these changes and with AI, you know, there's risk, but there's benefits. Um, I guess like, what do you see as some of the main risks around artificial intelligence and, you know, how that impacts organizations? Yeah. So certainly as your, uh, as organizations are adopting artificial intelligence and, um, different kind of emerging technologies, large language models, LLMs, things like that within their operations, you know, there is a lot of productivity gain they experience, but there's there's totally new types of attacks. Um, and in fact, historically within the within the cybersecurity space, um, we don't always think as much as we should about the loss of integrity, like within the CIA triad, we think about confidentiality and availability a whole lot. Loss of integrity, maybe less so. But when we're talking about AI models, large language models, things like that, loss of integrity becomes a real concern. Those models are making decisions. They're the basis for decisions within the organization. And there are new types of attacks or threats that can impact those models. So uh, to the you know, come to mind are, are poisoning a model. So kind of consistently feeding it things that can make that model make decisions and, you know, using improper data, which is almost what we're talking about when we're talking about, you know, kind of the benefits of using FAIR versus a, um, versus, uh, you know, kind of your legacy uh, risk management decision-making processes the model could be bad and someone can intentionally feed it bad decisions or you know, accidentally um, the model can make some bad decisions based on what it's been trained on. So there's certainly the risk of that. We need to understand where, what AI is being trained on, what decisions it's being used in um, and how impactful, like how good the model needs to be, how much we need to invest in it when we're making those decisions. Um, so I think that's, that's something that, you can model out with FAIR and CRQ and risk scenarios. What, what does a loss of integrity of decision-making look like in this specific area of the models being used in to understand and prioritize what models might be most critical to your operations? Um, and then, you know, obviously there's a ton of different risks that kind of pop up in, in the use of AI and uh, things like that. So I don't know, Tim, if, if you have any other thoughts on some, some key risks that might be worth looking at. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the recent um, risks that we've had discussions with, with uh, clients around is not that um, AI is bringing some new risks to the table, but rather that it's enhancing existing risks. And, and one example of that would be maybe like phishing, right? Um, it, it, it could, you know, uh, uh, an AI algorithm might be able to scrape LinkedIn, understand some of the internal speak of an organization, write a more tailored email to have more targeted phishing campaigns. Can all of that happen today? Absolutely. Um, but would an algorithm kind of help, you know, perpetuate that at scale? I think that's really where we see that. 
um, that having an impact, right? And so it's not that AI is a new risk, but rather that it's adding threat actor capability. Um, and and that would be how we'd kind of look at that. Now that said, if it's if AI is going to or if AI algorithms are going to have an impact on a variety of risks, can you take the you know the previous version of your assessment, look at kind of how that changed as a result of this new set of factors that were brought in, um, and then aggregate that across all of your risks to kind of slice and dice that data to to communicate that to various stakeholders. Absolutely right. But um, at a high level, I think it's more of an enhancement of threat actor capability um, than anything, at least with what we've modeled today. That's such an interesting, like, so there's the inherent, there's the risk of using AI yourself for business where, you know, there, the, if the data going into a model is bad, then you're almost like magnifying the bad data risk associated with it, which is fascinating. But then also like it's making, you know, we it's all the time it's talked about like how are threat actors getting smarter? And like AI is such an enabling capability for that. I mean, I guess the question then becomes is like, how can it, is it, what's the way for AI to make risk managers and risk decision makers smarter on the flip side to counter that kind of like bad use of AI? Um, are there benefits to it in using it in risk management? Yeah, of course. And, and in the same decision capability, like again, if you develop a model that has good capabilities and is trained on the right data, like security tools have been doing this for years now with machine learning, um, kind of using that to identify anomalous behavior within the organization and, and identify trends that are unfavorable to kind of put a stop to that. So AI can react a lot quicker and see patterns in things that that humans can't always do because it could spend a lot of time doing cycles, looking at different hypotheticals. Um, and that enables organizations to, to identify things quicker that could be risks. It helps create organizations that aren't just recovering from threats, but actually kind of learning from them uh, and, and being better enabled to respond to a threat in the future. So I think that's, you know, to me, the main benefit of AI, as well as, you know, hopefully the abil ability someday to be able to have it do some of this risk quantification and fair analysis at scale for us. So we can ask it questions like, you know, what's on my risk related to this scenario versus having to go quantify that ourselves. You know, I think that's probably a few years off before we can do that um, uh, at real scale. But it helps make a lot of what we're talking about here more achievable for organizations when you can plug some of that up, understand the model, but but really get valuable answers out of it to make quick decisions on the and even again someday maybe let the model make some decisions for you, but certainly not anytime soon. <laughs> Those were kind of the main topics that I was hoping to cover today. I uh, you know one thing that I we like to end this on is um a little thing called <laughs> risk or that which is a little bit of like a would you rather around risk topics and so um starting with a fun one we talked about dora who is not only an eu regulation but also a famous explorer in the uh children's uh cartoon space um so thinking about <laughs> famous explorers uh who is um in your opinion who's a riskier explorer uh, Indiana Jones or uh, Captain Kirk? Daniel, you can start with this one. 
<laughs> okay. Um, no, that's a, it's, it's a good question. And, uh, uh, you know, I think there has to be some points that go to Captain Kirk just for, you know, space exploration is a little bit just inherently riskier, I'd say, than, than on the ground, uh, you know, exploration here. But I, I will say Indiana Jones comes across some supernatural stuff here and there that, um, you know, you can't always anticipate and, uh, nearly, they both nearly died many times. So it's, unfortunately they're both in a very risky business, but I'd have to give it to Kirk just for the space angle, the, you know, exploring the beyond and, uh, um, yeah. What are your thoughts? (laughs) Yeah. I think the way I look at it is that Indy's dealing with more traditional risks, uh, guns, boulders, you know, poisonous darts, um, things that we know, although his tools are limited and his uh, mitigation strategies are are limited, whereas Kirk is dealing with more uh, emerging risks, but he has technology uh, at his at his side to help combat some of that. So uh, maybe it's a wash. I don't know. We'd have to do the analysis. No, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about it through the lens of also like what resources do they have? At their disposal you know yeah kirk's got starfleet but you know indy's got a much smaller scope of those in, in his own way um so i appreciate that um similarly and more aligned to what we talked about before uh there's this concept of um you know where cyber risk originates and in your opinion do you believe like does you think cyber risk tends to originate more within your organization or from like external factors to your organization? Tim, you can go first on this one. Yeah, that's a good question. So if it, if we're just talking about actors, I think it uh, exists more externally. If we just look at the data, there's more external actors than there are, you know, insider threats. But that said, I think maybe where your question is getting at is, are we is an organization exposing themselves unnecessarily which you know puts them at you know uh, targets them to external actors so it's a good question um i think if i had to just make a decision i would say more externally but uh but i could see i could see a case either way yeah i i think the framing of the question uh tim that you get up there is exactly the right way to approach this which is like we we can statistically say, you know, 80% plus of threats come from outside the organization. But when you think about it in the sense of, you know, who put, you know, a system with all their customers' data out uh, on it into, you know, web facing, et cetera, in the first place for an attacker to be able to take advantage of, you know, that's an internal decision that was made to do that. You know, whether that's, you know, a risk versus benefit decision, management's always making decisions, whether it's like, is this risk acceptable? And you could conceivably argue that, yeah, some of that comes, that risk originally comes from an internal decision or or action that was made, not maliciously. Um, But, you know, there, there, it's an interesting kind of chicken or the egg question, which came first, the, the internal decision or the attacker. So. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Go ahead. Sorry, Tim. Oh, no, I was just going to say the, the, like, if you look at it from kind of the realm of control, like 
what you know what levers can you pull to secure the organization um you know there are certain factors that you know you can influence but then at the same time there you know are nation states and actors that have sophistication that you might not be able to defend against um you know at least entirely so I like the question. It's thought provoking, but I don't know if I've got a, a full answer for you. Yeah. And it's what's kind of like, and it's never going to happen, like probably purely one way or the other. You're not going to have someone like purely internally just, you know, committing cyber crime. I mean, you, there's 100% examples of that. But, and similarly, you're probably never going to have just like these like brute force attacks that only work like there's going to be some kind of like give and take about that where our attackers are getting to call back to the AI and, you know, phishing emails, like they're getting smarter. And so our organizations keeping pace and training and enablement to respond to those and like react to those because everyone in some way could have that kind of like impact in giving access to that external product. So is it, I, yeah, like I, I guess I don't have a strong opinion on it either, but it's just like a fascinating how those two play together. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I guess the, the kind of last one here is when you think about the like risk industry and the GRC industry, we talked about emerging technologies, but then similarly, we're talking about these regulations on emerging technology. So there's these conversations around how do you like regulate, like responsibly regulate AI. And so I'd be, so it's interesting, like if we talk about the GRC space, which of those two do you think is gonna have more of an impact? Is it gonna be the way we use the technology within GRC or is it gonna be able to like respond to these regulations and comply with them? That is like around it, that will have more of an impact. Yeah, I guess. The way I would think about this, you know, I think people are going to feel most of the day-to-day impact, sure, from the regulations. The day-to-day, a GRC professional, you've got to meet and comply with the, the letter of the law in those cases, and that's what your GRC program is designed to help do. But, yeah, I, I would make the theoretical argument that the emerging technologies themselves have the bigger impact. I mean, the regulations, despite what you know, your opinion may or may not be, um, they don't come from, you know, out of a vacuum. They come from the fact that there are real societal impacts from emerging technologies. And and there's a reason why those regulations are being written most of the time, let's say. Um, And, you know, there's a reason why financial services institutions, for example, have a lot of resiliency ratings, concerns around them. And that's because, really important that folks have access to their their digital currency um, and the ability to have capital freely flow throughout the society. That's extremely important. Um, Same from a healthcare perspective. And the fact that we're digitizing so much of that, that's causing the, the reason for why we need to have this level of you know, scrutiny over those operations, because if there's an integrity question or, or something like that related to that, you know, that's just not something that existed before other than, you know, what we dealt with with financial audit, you know, making, you know, counting the dollars, making sure they're there in the bank. We don't do that anymore, but we got to make sure that the, the ones and zeros all line up. Um, it's the same thing, just different technology behind it. 
in my opinion, the, the emerging technologies, what causes the need for that additional level of scrutiny. Yeah, I agree with all that. I, I think when you say impact, there's kind of two things that come to mind. There is the impact of this emerging technology on the risk posture of the organization. And I think that's the clear winner. The risk is greater as a result of the emerging technology, but at the same time, the organizational impact may be greater uh, from the regulation because it's changing the processes, the way that the organization responds or is required to operate within a certain market. So I think you know, if we define impact in those kind of two different ways, that's how I'd look at it. And so maybe two winners for two different contests. That makes sense. And like, yeah, I'm, I do think about it in the sense of, you know, there's probably the front line, you know, the first line of defense of the business is the one like adopting that technology. And then the second line needs to figure out how to comply with these regulations to keep the first line out of out of trouble. And so, and then the third line's got to figure out how to check that the second line's doing it too. So um, no, I appreciate the the perspective there. Those were all the questions I had. Any um any parting thoughts you'd like to leave with the listeners? No, I think this is a, a good conversation. Um, have enjoyed kind of having it with the team. And I, I think there's there's a lot more to come in this space, obviously, with emerging technologies. Risk is is always changing. Uh, it's one of the things that keeps us, you know, interested in in moving forward. So I think, you know, stay tuned in the, the risk quantification space. There's a lot of automation and emerging technologies that folks are looking to uh, in order to make these more actionable. So um, excited to see kind of the growth of it over time. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add is I just reiterate the fact that, um, you know, risk management should be used as a as a tool, right? It should help drive the business. It should help make decisions and be effective and shouldn't necessarily be a, a toll gate or, a, you know, a stick, uh, but rather a you know, a tool that helps enable. Um, so I think, you know, with that kind of reframing, it, um, you know, can can change kind of the way that an organization reacts and responds to uh, to those types of discussions. Well, I appreciate that. And I know that I'm going to take away and start thinking of, you know, risk quantification is, uh, you know, a way to drive decisions and drive actions um, with our customers and our clients. So I appreciate y'all sharing and for coming on the show. Thanks for having us, Chris.